0: Well, good morning to each of you. Good to be with you. I see a few familiar faces from uh, Grace Community Church in Glenrose. One or two faces from Grace Covenant in Weatherford. Who's from Grace Covenant in Weatherford? I see. Oh, a few. Okay. How many from Grace Bible Church in Grandbury? Just one. Wow. All right. Um, how many are local? Calvary. We're not even hitting half. Where's everybody from? Just yell it out. Abilene, Georgetown, Grace Community Fellowship. Where? Georgetown, Georgetown, Grace Community Fellowship. Sulphur Springs, Texas. Texas. Wow. Southside Baptist Baptist in Granbury. Abilene. Abilene. Yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah, Abilene. (laughs) Anywhere else? South Lake. Duncanville. Duncanville. Bridgeport, Waco, Palaco. Never, I've never heard of that one. What's it near? San Antonio. Okay, you've come a long way. Welcome to you both. No one from out of state. All right. Well, it is good to be with you. Uh, My name is Stephen Yule, and um, I serve as professor of spiritual formation. Pastoral Theology at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary right here in town, just down the road, not too far from here. And it's uh, wonderful to be with you. I have this session with you, and then I'm disappearing, and I have a couple of sessions with uh, track one. But it is quite... uh, So how many... So track two, so your second time at this conference, or some of you sort of three, four, five-timers... Alright, that's okay. Just own it. 11? Oh, that's alright. Nothing to be ashamed of there. That's okay. <laughs> I, I tell students, you know, you get students in their masters and they're you know, supposed to be a two or three year program and they're six, seven years in. But I always assure them it took me nine years to get my masters. I just kind of whittled away at it over the years. Nothing wrong with that. Well, let me open with a word of prayer and then we will get at our topic for this session. Our Heavenly Father, we do enter your presence with thanksgiving in our hearts. We worship you because you are the ancient of days, the one who is from everlasting to everlasting. And as we meditate upon your eternity and the fact that you are the same yesterday, today and forever, there we find a great source of encouragement and hope knowing that as you are the same throughout the centuries, above all succession of time, that your power does not change, your wisdom does not change, your plans and purposes do not change. and You have taken us as your people, we have taken you as our God, and we are so thankful that this relationship is rooted in your unchanging will and your steadfast love toward us. And so with much encouragement and with boldness, we do come before you. We bring all of our cares and burdens and anxieties, undoubtedly, in a group like this. Many of us are thinking of family members. Some of us are thinking of neighbors, church members, problems, issues, concerns. And we do bring them all before you, casting all of our cares and burdens at your feet and praying that you would grant us that peace which passes all understanding As we fix the eyes of faith upon the Lord Jesus and may you lead us into his love and lead us into his steadfastness this day. We thank you for Calvary Church for opening their doors for hosting this conference for all of these young people and older people serving and giving of their time. We are so thankful for their generosity and for this conference how you have used it and blessed it over the years. For this too, we are exceedingly thankful and we come with expectant hearts, with anticipation, knowing that you will bless it, to, bless it to us, that we truly might grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus and that this might benefit us personally, it might strengthen families and marriages and invariably might also lead to the edification of your people, the church. And so we come as dependent children, we come with, again with thanksgiving in our hearts, and we ask you to hear our prayers in Christ's name. Amen. All right. The danger of mysticism. I can't think of a better way to start a Saturday morning <laughs> than this. The danger of mysticism. I don't know if they've ever offered this at this conference. They, they emailed me a few months ago and said, hey, are you... Working on anything new is there anything that kind of interests you and I threw this one in there with a list of regular topics I submit and they went for it Uh, The reason I submitted it is because it interests me in my own studies uh, I'm very much immersed in historical theology and so very interested in the subject of mysticism throughout the centuries in the history of the church And I am interested in it on a pastoral level. And I see the importance of this subject to church life, to ministry, broadly defined, and specifically to biblical counseling. In a biblical counseling context, yes, plenty of motifs, subjects before us, assessments to be done. And steps and guidelines and scriptures to employ. And we have targets and objectives before us. And yet, if you have uh, dabbled in biblical counseling, if you are engaged in it, you know that with counseling, ministry in general, uh, there comes a myriad of problems and struggles. You're going to meet the legalist in a biblical counseling context, right? Right? You are going to meet the apathetic. I just couldn't care less. You are going to meet the confused, just never been taught properly. And all these confused notions, scrambled thinking. You're going to meet the hostile. And they're going to let you know it. You're going to meet the obstinate. There are one or two of them out there. And you are going to meet the mystic probably far more often than you have any idea you can even conceive how embedded mysticism is within evangelicalism today and i will posit it right now to convince you if you are not already convinced of the importance of this subject that by and large most people you engage with in a biblical biblical counseling context will Subscribe in some form or another to mysticism. And it is a huge problem in church life, ministry, and biblical counseling. So I want to walk you through it. What it is, where it comes from, how to address it. And I trust the Lord will bless it to us. Let me begin with a number of scenarios. All right? Just to make sure we're all on the same page. You see where we're going and you can just you know, trace my thought flow as we proceed this morning. So here we go. I'm browsing the books at Barnes and Noble. Here's what I see. Proof of heaven. A neurosurgeon's trip into the afterlife. My journey to heaven. What I saw and how it changed my life. Heaven is for real, a little boy's astounding story of his trip to heaven and back. 90 minutes in heaven, a true story of death and life. To heaven and back, a doctor's extraordinary account of her death, heaven, angels, and life again. Waking up in heaven, a true story of brokenness, heaven, and life again. Nine days in heaven, the vision of Marietta Davis. 40 days in heaven, the true testimony of Seneca Saudi's visitation to paradise. Flight to heaven, a plane crash, a lone survivor, a journey to heaven and back. And finally, one, 23 minutes in hell. One man's story about what he saw, heard, and felt in that place of torment. What are you going to do with all that? How are you going to process that? Here's another scenario. I'm listening to a preacher on television. He says, many Christians incorrectly believe that everything God wants us to know has already been revealed in this book, the scripture. He claims to receive fresh words of revelation from God all the time. He explains that God is seeking to establish dominion over the earth through the help of overcomers who submit to the authority of God's modern-day apostles. These apostles have direct contact with the spirit realm. There's a unity between these apostles and angelic beings, thereby creating a link by which revelation is conveyed. This revelation is essential for guiding the church in its mission to establish God's dominion over the earth. I'm attending a small group Bible study. This is scenario number three. The scripture text is Matthew 18:20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. The man to my left says he feels this verse is one of the reasons why we should have smaller churches. Christ's presence isn't felt as strongly in a group of 200 as it is in a much smaller gathering. The woman to my right says she feels this verse really means we need to give more attention to what Christ is saying when we are gathered together. And so there should be more time for quiet reflection and contemplation. The man across from me is teary eyed. His face shows his perplexity. He wants to know if this verse means that Christ isn't with him when he's feeling lonely. Finally, the group leader chimes in. He informs the group that the verse is actually about church discipline. (laughs) Immediately, hold on, it gets worse. Immediately, a woman cuts him off saying she just doesn't feel right in her spirit about this subject because the church is so judgmental. That kills any meaningful interpretation of the text. But for the next half hour, the group has a wonderful time of sharing what the text means to each of them. Far too common, I'm afraid. Here's another one. I'm sitting under a willow tree beside a beautiful pond. Temperature is perfect. There's a gentle breeze. Birds are chirping. Bees are buzzing. Ducks are quacking. The turtle is sunning itself on a log. I'm going to pray. Rather than speak, I'm going to wait for God to speak to me. Close my eyes allowing nature to envelop me overwhelm me i wait peek at my watch 5 minutes have passed i wait some more then it happens i have a feeling i have a feeling no it has nothing to do with the three burritos i ate for breakfast <laughs> i can tell the difference i have a feeling god is letting me know how much he cares for me this is wonderful i feel such peace i've never felt before god has just shown me he is real because I have a feeling. One more. Can you stomach one more? I'm count- and this one is actually real. This, I, this, this is. I was in this room. I'm counseling a man who says the spirit is leading him to leave his wife. Well, he knows he has no grounds for divorce. But God has shown him that in this case it is the right thing to do. It'll be best for everyone in the long run. He'll be in a better position to get involved in ministry. He'll be in a better position to serve the Lord. To top it all off, he'll be happier. Besides, God is sovereign. God can bring good from evil. I attempt to turn his attention to what Scripture actually says about the subject. He shoots me down, assuring me. He knows what the Bible says. His situation is unique, different, and exceptional. And on top of all this, he has peace. Hence, ergo, the spirit of God has spoken to him because he has peace. He tells me, I need to step out of my little world and understand what great things God is going to accomplish through his divorce. All right, I could go on and on and on and on. Multiple situations, different, yet all share one common denominator. They are examples of mysticism or what some call Gnostic spiritualism is what it really is. It's not Christianity, folks. It is Gnostic spiritualism. It is mysticism. So three questions to begin with. A paradigm that is going to blow your mind, I hope. A couple of diagrams. A biblical text that I trust will serve us well. And then right back to a a spirituality of the Word and what it means to bring the Word to bear in life, and in particular, a counseling context. So question number one, mysticism, what is it? There it is in a nutshell. It is the belief, the conviction, that we can obtain an immediate, that's a key word, immediate knowledge of God in this life through personal experience. And so it is not a knowledge that is mediated through this book. It doesn't come through this book. It is unmediated. It is above, beyond, over this book. Something other than this book. That I have an experience of God. I receive a revelation from God. I determine God's will and I do so on the basis of a personal experience. And more often than not, in our circles, that personal experience is a gust of emotion. That's how I ascertain that God is speaking to me. And revealing, conveying His sovereign will for my life. So there you have it. Mysticism, the belief that we can obtain an immediate knowledge of God in this life through personal experience. Question number two, why are people so attracted to it? I think part of the issue in our day is the cultural moment in which we find ourselves. Modernity, when you think of the history of Western civilization, the rise of modernity in the 1700s, 1800s, and this basic presupposition that human reason and human goodness will usher in a utopia right? That we will advance, we will progress, and on the basis of unleashed human reason, and on the basis of innate human goodness, progress after progress after progress, and finally a utopian state, dare I say it, God's kingdom on earth. That was modernity. It took the Napoleonic wars followed by two world wars to completely blow that idea out of the water. And it gave way to what? Postmodernism. Essentially, therefore, the basis upon which we ascertain truth, the basis upon which we determine what is real, what is true, what is good, what is beautiful, is not the human intellect. That program has proved bankrupt. It is human emotions and how I feel. And we are now living in an era defined as applied postmodernism, where basically that is the reality that is front and center In Western society, the United States of America, each of us determines truth by ourselves because there is no higher authority than the individual and what I happen to be feeling at this particular moment. And so because of the despair that postmodernism leads to, many people have turned the stimulation of their senses and feelings to infuse life with meaning. It's the only place meaning can be found. What I'm feeling, it is the highest authority. And evangelicalism has not been immune to that that has infiltrated evangelicalism much most of evangelicalism whereby many evangelicals today this is subconsciously or consciously knowingly unknowingly this is how they approach life and this is how they approach the christian faith it is purely on the basis of the degree to which it stimulates my feelings at me And I become the ultimate authority then when it comes to defining my relationship with God, what is true, what is right, what is good. And so it is something of this cultural moment, I think, that has fostered just how expansive this has become within evangelicalism. It has led many to a frantic search for an experience that will assure them that they have a relationship with God. Purely subjective. Purely subjective. We think it sounds good. Who wouldn't want to hear directly from God? Who wouldn't want to be closer to God? Who doesn't struggle with boredom? Who isn't weary of the mundane? Who isn't looking for something spectacular? And so it is very alluring. We think it sounds good. Here's another factor at play. We place far too much emphasis on our feelings. We want to be moved. We want to be stirred. We want to be inspired. I enjoy music in a minor key. All I have to do is hear the Scottish pipes and drums. And I'm feeling something. I'm <laughs> stirred. And we want to be stirred. I enjoy sunsets. I enjoy a good story. Either in book or film. I enjoy seeing an underdog overcome insurmountable problems on the way to the realization of his dream. And we bring this same desire into the realm of religion. And we begin to determine the veracity Of religion on the basis of the degree to which I am stirred. I am moved. And we're susceptible to this. Too much emphasis on our feelings. Thirdly, we want a quick fix. We're looking for a game changer. We're looking for a silver bullet. We're looking for an extraordinary event that will alter the course of our lives. We're searching for an exceptional experience that will make our spiritual journey easier. Always remember, Peter saw Christ transfigured. And within a relatively short period of time, he is denying the Lord Jesus Christ. Despite that experience, in the short term anyway, it made very little difference in Peter's life. See, we dislike the alternative to a quick fix, which is what? Hard work. Many of us would rather take a pill than exercise. Many of us would rather undergo surgery than change our lifestyle. Many of us would rather pursue an experience than discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. We want a quick fix. We need to recognize it. Another factor at play, we err in our thinking. David Wells writes, people who are attracted to mysticism usually assume that what is hidden in God is other than what is revealed or what is deeper or more interesting or more spiritually nourishing. They fail to recognize that in Scripture culminating in the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, God has revealed all we need to know. And he has granted us all things in Christ Jesus. So that's some reason, some of what is at play to account for why mysticism has spread quite literally like wildfire within evangelicalism in our day. Here's the third question, then where does it come from? All right, you're sitting comfortably. You've had your second cup of coffee. You ready for this? Okay, there's where it comes from. Uh, simply put, a little philosophical, all right? And we'll, we'll be as quick and as simple as we can be. You're familiar with the word dualism. Dual is what? Two. Dualism. So, dualism is a worldview that really originates with Plato, the philosopher, Plotinus, who comes hundreds of years after Plato. It's called Neo Platonism. And dualism then is a worldview that has been around for 25, 26, 2700 years, perhaps longer. All right? What is it about dualism, its worldview? Basic, fundamental to a dualistic worldview is this. There are two realms. Have I lost anybody? Would you admit it if you were lost? <laughs> there are two realms, okay? There is a spiritual realm. And there is a material realm. These are two separate, distinct, never confused Realms, spheres in a Christian dualistic view. Well, the spiritual realm who inhabits the spiritual realm? Well, God, angels, spirits, demons, right? That's the spiritual realm. Who or what inhabits the material realm? Well, animals, plants, rocks. You get the idea then, right? Okay, we're human beings. Where do we fit in a dualistic paradigm? Well, that's you, the blue dot. That's you. And so in a dualistic worldview, there's a part of you called spirit. Which realm does it belong to? Spiritual realm. And there's a part of you that belongs to the material realm, your body, obviously our physical body, but also what? Our mind and our senses. Here's the question. If you want to know anything in the material realm, what do you use? Mind, observation, observation. Senses. If you want to know anything in the spiritual realm, what do you use? Your spirit. Because your spirit is ontologically connected to the spiritual realm. Ontology, study of being. You have, there's some sort of fusion of being with your spirit and the spiritual realm, whereby we know intuitively or we receive directly communication, information, gusts of emotion, feelings that communicate to us a knowledge which transcends the use of our mind as we read God's word. Yes, read God's word, understand it, that's important. Oh, but there's more to God's revelation. There's more to knowing God. There is a part of us that is connected to God, a part of us that is connected to this realm whereby we are privy to... Direct communication from God on the basis of our feelings, our gusts of emotion. That, this is where mysticism comes from. Mysticism within Islam is known as Sufism. Hinduism, mystical religion. Buddhism, it's a mystical religion. Christian mysticism is a mystical religion. And they all share the same common denominator, They are rooted in a dualistic philosophical system. A very specific, well-defined understanding of the cosmos and our place as human beings in it. Does that make sense? All right. Here's a biblical worldview. You like the diagrams? I hope so because here we go. Last one. Here's a biblical worldview. How we really do explain the cosmos. We say, yes, there are two orders or two realms, if you like. The first realm is the uncreated, infinite order inhabited by but one, the triune God. That is it. Uncreated, the triune God. And then guess what the other order is? Absolutely everything else. So we do not believe in two spheres, a spiritual and a material, us stuck in the middle. No, we believe in two orders. There is God, the great I Am. The one who is above without beginning, without end, above all succession of time. The blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. And then guess what? Then there is everything else. That's the division that we believe in as Christians. And this God created Eknihilo, everything else out of nothing. And so in the created finite order, yes, you have rocks, plants, animals and angels. They're not part of some spiritual realm. They are part of a created finite order and human beings, body and soul. Meaning what? There is not a part of us connected with some other realm by which we receive some kind of direct unmediated communication from this great spirit, be it God or whomever. No, we are body and soul. And if we want to know anything Of this God triune, he must what? He must speak. He must reveal himself. And he has revealed himself. We call that the revelation of God, culminating in the incarnation of Christ. Christ, the eternal son of God, who has entered the created finite order whereby the very revelation of God to us culminates in Christ. Therefore, if we want to know anything of God, and if we want to know anything of God's will, we turn to the revelation that he has given to us. As Christians in the 21st century, that revelation as it is contained in that book. And if I want to hear God's voice, all I have to do is open this book and read it And as I heard someone say recently, if I want to hear God speak to me audibly, all I need to do is open this book and read it out loud. (laughs) And I will hear his audible voice, the voice of God speaking to me, all sufficient, complete, all I need. But I know we went through that quickly, two diagrams, some of you taking pictures, that's all right. You can go back and digest that later. But lots more to be said on that. We do not have time. We're kind of doing a 30,000 foot flyover. But I at least hope the two paradigms starting to take form in your head and understanding, yeah, hey, there's something pretty big going on here. This is something pretty consequential and it's actually rooted in how we understand the cosmos and our place in it. And who God is. God is not part of the created order. And we are not part of the uncreated order. Therefore, God must speak. And He has spoken to us in that book, culminating in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As Peter Adam puts it, it is the Word of God. It is the Word of God that bridges the gap between divine and human reality, between heaven and earth, between God's thoughts and our thoughts. Between God's ways and our ways. All right. Three questions. My three answers. That's all we have time for. Just turn to your notes as I try to sum it all up now. I'm going to begin reading where it states this subtle mysticism. See where I am? This subtle mysticism is the belief that immediate, immediate guidance from God. In the form of voice-like thoughts and strongly inclined imaginings and inner urgings as regularly given to Bible believers, many people equate spirituality with the practice of listening for God's voice in their heart. They believe it is God's standard practice to provide some identifiable nudge, gust of emotion from the Holy Spirit. They embrace this experience as the essence of what it means to have a personal relationship with God. I can recall many, many, many years ago, sitting in a church office speaking with a young man i don't know how many kids he had at home at the time married and unemployed for several months he had been offered a job i think it was working nights i can't remember what it was doing packaging or assembly line i don't know he mortgage wife kids unemployed for several months he'd been offered this job and um he came in to let me know because he'd let me know that he'd been offered it. He came a few weeks later to let me know he had turned it down. I said, excuse me? He turned it down? He said, yeah. I prayed about it. And this is how, you know, when I pray about something, God gives me a sense of peace when he wants me to make that decision. I have no peace when he doesn't want me to make that decision. I had no peace. I said, I'll give you a piece of something. That's why I felt like saying. <laughs> You've got a wife and kids, you've got a mortgage, you've got mounting bills, you have no job, you were offered a job, you said no to that job, and you have peace? Brother, that is not God speaking to you. I don't care what you're feeling. I could not care less. How about using some good old-fashioned biblical wisdom? Or as my father would say, some good old fashioned Scottish common sense, right? Just some biblical wisdom and apply the word of God to your situation, what God has called you to, what God requires of you, what God has entrusted to you, weigh your circumstances and make wise decisions. But no, this was his spirituality. And this is how he had lived life to that point. This is how he was navigating his Christian pilgrimage. That he was expected to figure out God's will in every specific situation of life. Every decision he was facing, he was to figure out and determine God's will on the basis of a gust of emotion. That is not biblical Christianity. That is mysticism. It is actually a subtle form of Gnosticism that is rooted in a very skewed view of the cosmos. Reading on, despite all the talk of God, this form of spirituality leaves people alone with themselves. Their relationship with God becomes contingent upon nebulous feelings. As they search ever deeper within for God, they plunge themselves into a deeper state of spiritual perplexity. And I have encountered this with young people. You know, they're, they're seminary students and they're trying to figure out what the next step is. Um, that church, this church, get married now, get married later. And they almost work themselves into an apoplectic state because they're so convinced that God is supposed to give them something, communicate to him internally. And they're navel gazing so inward looking as they work themselves into this frenzied state. If only I knew God's will and could figure out God's will. How many of you, you're going to meet them in biblical counseling. You're going to meet them regularly and to be able to graciously come alongside and deconstruct. That's what needs to happen. Deconstruct an entire worldview and misconception of what it means to be a disciple of Lord Jesus Christ, what true spirituality is, what a personal relationship with God really is, and to graciously, patiently deconstruct that and bring them to the word. And shift their focus to what it means to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. To bring them to grow in their understanding of what it means. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And God's requirement of us to walk wisely, circumspectly. And to make wise, informed decisions in life. The results of this mindset, experience breeds experience meaning the pursuit of experience becomes a treadmill from which they can't escape. The results are damaging. It's bad for psychological health. This way of making your feelings into God imposes on you an unhealthy narcissism, a false grandiose grandiosity of the self. And you'll know it because I've experienced it. That individual who comes and says, God has told me and God has communicated his will to me, I have the audacity to say, I, I, I don't think so. Well, there is immediately what? A wall. Why? Because I have just attacked that individual's entire spirituality, their relationship with God. And why? Because they have a grandiose view of themselves. that God has told me, you can't disagree with me. It goes back to that scenario of that man who sat there in in my office daring to say God had told him to divorce his wife. And he was at peace about it. And that I would dare to open the scriptures. How, How dare you go there? I've just told you God's will. He's communicated it to me. And so his issues going backwards were far more fundamental. What was it? Absolutely riddled with pride. A grandiose view of their selves. Bad for psychological health. It is bad for moral character. It blocks the pursuit of wisdom. And therefore undermines moral responsibility. And it is bad for spiritual life. It gets you to base your spiritual life on an unreal idea of God, a God you're supposed to make real in your life by having the right experience. Instead of learning what God says about himself in his word, you have to dance with shadows in your own heart and figure out which of them to call God. This almost superstitious, it is not almost superstitious. It is superstitious. This is a superstitious preoccupation with what one feels. So far from being a sign of deep spirituality, it is actually an eccentricity. What is needed so desperately is a recovery of confidence in biblically based thinking. J.I. Packer goes on to say, Those whom I call restless experientialists are a familiar breed. So much so that observers are sometimes tempted to define evangelicalism in terms of them. Their outlook is one of valuing strong feelings above deep thoughts. They have little taste for solid study, disciplined meditation, unspe- unspectacular hard work in, the callings, in their callings and prayers. In their restlessness, these exuberant ones become uncritically credulous, reasoning that the more odd and striking an experience, the more divine, supernatural, and spiritual it must be. They have fallen victim to a form of worldliness, a man-centered, anti-rational individualism. And it is a huge problem In the church, in ministry, and in biblical counseling. If you have not faced it, I guarantee it, you will. You will. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. A great text to help us in this regard. There are many. We will restrict our analysis to this one. Colossians 2. And in verse... Let me actually read verse... uh, 4-6, 4-6, through 6, and then verses 18 and 19. Colossians 2, 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Rooted, built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Over to verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, asceticism. So this idea that uh, going back to a dualistic worldview, right? Well, there's a part of me, the spirit that is attached to the spiritual and a part of me, my body, reason, senses attached to the material well, if I want to know anything of the spiritual realm, God, if I want to draw closer to Him, I need to free that spirit part of me from that material part of me. Well, the way to do that is to engage in ascetic practices. I deprive myself of sleep, I deprive myself of food, I take barbed wire and wrap it around my thigh and walk around with it there, giving myself tangible pain during the day or some other act of self-flagellation. I engage in asceticism in order to dull the senses of my body so that I can transcend reason so that that spirit part of me can be released for closer communion and fellowship with God. Study the history of the church. The church has always wrestled with this church still wrestles with this in some degrees today. This is rooted in dualism, material, bad, spiritual, good. Ergo, the bad must be repressed, oppressed, must be curbed to release the spiritual for greater, closer communion with God. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. So let no one disqualify you. I mentioned in your notes there, the term literally means to umpire, to act as judge. The expression parallels what Paul says in verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you. And so in verse 18, he opens with that phrase, let no one disqualify you. It is followed by four participle qualifiers. So you see the word insisting, that's a participle. It is qualifying the command. Let no one disqualify you. Well, well, how would someone disqualify me? Insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Here's the second. Going on in detail about visions. The third, being puffed up, literally being puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. And then the fourth into verse 19, not holding fast to the head. Participle qualifiers. Paul uses them all the time. He'll make a statement, he'll give a command, and then he'll qualify it telling us exactly what he means using these participles. So you just take these four modifying clauses and what do we learn? Paul is rebuking those who delight in what they do. He is delighted in what he does, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Paul is describing people who think that through certain practices... They can reach a higher spiritual experience equivalent to the angel's experience. Notice his second description are He's committed to what he sees, this individual. There's the participle going on in detail about visions. Paul is describing those who are always seeking new insights and experiences. The danger is that experience becomes the authority for his spiritual life. Thirdly, inflated by what he experiences, being puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Their experiences produce a way of thinking that perpetuates the entire process. Extremely difficult to reason with them why the sensuous mind delights in experiences ultimately is an issue of pride. Fourthly, he's disconnected from what he needs, not holding fast to the head. Paul makes three observations about our physical bodies in this verse. Number one, the body is knit together through its joints and ligaments. Two, the body is nourished, energized from the head. Three, the body grows when everything functions properly. That's you and me. What's his point? What's true in the physical? True in the spiritual. The spirits work in us. As the body of Christ, we are knit together. The Holy Spirit binds us together in Christ. As the body of Christ, we are energized by our head. Christ animates the whole body. He gives life and imparts spiritual power. As the body of Christ, when everything functions properly, we grow with a growth that is from God. In short, here's the punchline. The mystic is guilty of decapitation. How do we hold fast to the head? He's told us back in verse 6, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. We cannot lay hold of something that is nebulous. We take hold of the head through his appointed means, the word, not through legalism, mysticism, or asceticism. When we hold fast to the head, we grow in maturity. A mature Christian is a person with a full head and a full heart. When we emphasize one at the expense of the other, we end up with a distortion. A Christian with a full heart but empty head is like a four-year-old flying a plane, a recipe for disaster. A Christian with a full head, but empty heart is like a 40 year old riding a tricycle cause for concern. All right. The spirituality of the word, then where it is, we're seeking to direct people. I think I probably only need 10 minutes for this. So let me pause here. I think it's probably a great place. And dare I ask if there are any questions, something that needs clarifying. Yes, brother, Dave, Yes, sir. Dave. Mm-hmm. Was connected to prayer. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. I'm a professor of spiritual formation. I that's was so you just, I that. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, the old Puritans, English Puritans. They were, for the most part, very clear in differentiating between consideration, meditation, and contemplation. Consideration, you open the Bible, you study it, you get your Bible dictionary out, commentary, use your pencil crayons or whatever you're using, and you're taking notes and you're trying to figure out the meaning of the text. Consideration. Meditation is what? You've got it. You understand it. In the text you happen to be reading... You know, uh, beloved, those you know, beloved of God, walk in love as Christ love does, and gave Himself up for as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So you've been studying Ephesians five, but that phrase in there, beloved of God, oh, you're going to work that down on your heart, in your heart. This is meditation. You're going to think that through. In what ways am I beloved of God? How has He manifested it? You think even in the context of Ephesians. Well, he set his love upon us before the foundation of the world, the love of the Father. And now in the text, you have the love of the Son, who loved us and gave himself up for us. And you have the love of the Spirit. And Paul prays that the Spirit might dwell in us, God might give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. And he's very concerned that we might know the breadth and length and height and depth to comprehend the love of God, which surpasses knowledge. And so you're, oh, the love of the Father, the love of the Son, and the love of the Spirit. What does that mean for me? What does that mean, this Spirit? Fight who I am, what I have done. And you're working this down on the heart. And what does this tell me about God, his steadfast love? What other examples do I have of this in Scripture? I mean, look at how he loved Abraham. Look at how he loved David. Look at how he loved, you know, Naomi. Um, and then what does this love require of me? Well, beloved, those who are beloved of God, walk in love. Ooh, I'm supposed to actually walk in that same kind of love with which he loves me. How have I been doing with my wife just three hours ago. In the church. Neighbor, who I haven't spoken to in six months because we got in an argument over him not trimming his fence properly. Uh, how's it going? Walking in love. What does God now require of me moving forward? This is meditation, right? And then you have contemplation. And the word comes from Psalm 27:4. Paul says, One thing I desire, dwell in the house of the Lord that I might gaze upon the beauty of the Lord in where? His temple, contemplation. That's where the word comes from, in the temple, with the temple. It's this idea of looking upon God. David obviously mediated through revelation, but historically that word contemplation has been used to refer to another experience beyond consideration, beyond meditation, where we are actually to seek an experience that transcends reason moves beyond the word of God, whereby we enjoy just this bare unmediated communion with God. It's an ineffable, inexpressible experience which transcends thought. I cannot explain it and it's purely a motive. So this is contemplation. Hence contemplative prayer is what is It's, it's, it's not, vocalizing, it's not reading scripture, praying God's precepts and promises. It is actually what? Silence and solitude, seeking a direct, unmediated connection with the divine. So, yeah, no, I would not teach that. And I would not encourage Christians to practice that. Biblical meditation. You fill the mind with the word of God. And in meditation, we, we, we work it into our hearts and evaluate ourselves and ask, what does God require of us? And that then becomes the fuel for prayer. And that's how to cultivate the inner life and the the essence of true spiritual formation. But I'm glad you raised it, because you can see then how contemplative prayer is rooted in that dualistic worldview. And so you get it in Eastern Orthodox Church, Roman Catholicism, and it's usually connected then to the via negativa, right? The negative way, the purgative, the illuminative, and the unitive. Purgative is asceticism you need to then deprive yourself to release that spiritual part of you. The illuminative, when you move beyond the word of God and you enter in this great cloud of unknowing. And then the unitive, when you enjoy this fleeting momentary experience of direct, bare communion with the divine, there's a kinship and you're just overwhelmed. You can't, it's, it's beyond reason. Um, and we, we, we see that being infused into the evangelical tradition in the last 40, 50 years, whereby today it's become fairly standard. But we need to understand where these things come from, and um, especially when it comes to ministry and understanding why people think the way they do, where they're coming from, and being able to draw back the layers and put them on firmer ground. All right. Well, that was pretty much it. One question. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was a good one. No problem with that one. All right, then the spiritually, spirituality of the word. Three convictions we want to carry with us wherever we go. And especially whenever we engage with others in, uh, in ministry, in counseling specifically. There's the first. God's word is inseparable from God's spirit. That is a conviction we must carry with us. God's Word, inseparable from God's Spirit. The authors of Scripture expressed the truth in words which were inspired by the Holy Spirit, says Peter. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Peter is not talking about reading and interpreting the Bible, but about its inspiration. Prophecy was not the result of the prophet's own interpretation of things, it was not the author's idea. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This means that the words of Scripture are the words of the Spirit. The Bible never says that the authors were inspired, but that what they wrote was inspired. It's what they wrote, the words that are breathed out, breathed out, God inspired. And we see the confirmation of this throughout Scripture. Matthew twenty two, forty three, the Lord Jesus speaking, he said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit? Quoting from Psalm one ten, David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying Acts one sixteen, Peter, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. So he's quoting from Psalm sixty-nine, Psalm 109. But refers to those words, what was penned by David as the Spirit's speech, speaking. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying. When did the Holy Spirit say it? When Isaiah proclaimed it and wrote it down. It's actually the Spirit speaking. Hebrews 10:16. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying... The spirit saying, and he quotes Jeremiah 31, Romans 9, 17, Paul, the scripture says to Pharaoh, the scripture says to Pharaoh, the scripture says to Pharaoh, that makes no sense. Well, the spirit said to Pharaoh, well, yes, the same thing. Scripture says to him, the spirit says to him, God's word, God's spirit. It's the same. Yes, the spirit speaks through the word, his words breathed out. For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed on all the earth. He answered, the Lord Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them, God, from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Except when you go back to Genesis 2, God did not say that. Moses wrote it. But it's not actually God speaking in Genesis 2, but it is God speaking. Because if it is written, it is The very words of the spirit of God, God himself. This is assumed throughout the Bible that God's word inseparable from God's spirit, that what the spirit has revealed, made known, he then inspired to be written down through those instruments going all the way back to Genesis right through to revelation and the ongoing teaching ministry of the Holy spirit is still directly connected to what he revealed and inspired because he now ever since illumines us to understand what he has revealed and what he has inspired. If we want to hear his voice, the very words of God open this book anywhere you like. And we are hearing God's Spirit. I'm not sure we appreciate that to the degree to which we should. I could really get off on a tangent here. <laughs> to what degree does God's Word direct and permeate our worship, our corporate worship? To what degree is our personal devotion life transfixed on the Word of God? To what degree am I simply praying whatever I think is coming into my head, praying extemporaneously? Or are my prayers actually informed, determined, and directed by the very Word of God? It raises a host of questions, none of which we can table at this time. (laughs) Second truth conviction to carry with you is this God's Word is His communicative presence. In the beginning, right, God created the heavens and the earth, God said, Let there be light. And then he made light. No. God said, let there be light. And there was. there was light. His words, his speech is his power. We believe in one, a simple God, right? It's divine simplicity. And God in creating his power, his words. And therefore his words are the going forth of his power. And therefore his words, this word is his communicative presence to us. Timothy Ward has written a tremendous book on this subject, Communication from God, missed God in there. Communication from God is communion with God. This is the going forth of his power, this book right here. These are the words of God, hence communication from him. When I read it, I am communing with him. He goes on to say, Scripture is God in communicative action. Therefore, to encounter the words of Scripture is to encounter God in action. That's why Paul can declare, for example, in Romans ten seventeen, faith comes by and hearing pretty much sums it up right there. That is God's communicative presence. As the, going, the word is the going forth of his power, that when the Spirit chooses to accompany the word, When the spirit chooses to illumine the mind, incline the heart, that which he has revealed and that which he has inspired, that is the going forth of the power of God by which God himself then creates faith and cultivates faith. Hence, its centrality in worship, its centrality in preaching, its centrality in prayer, and its centrality in biblical counseling. If you want to see God work, you better give people what they need. It's God himself and God's voice. And the work of the Spirit of God by means of the Word of God. Paul, interestingly enough, never speaks of the Holy Spirit directly touching our soul. Never. And yet it's become such common lingo in our day. He does not contrast the work of the Holy Spirit and the exercise of the mind. He does not conceive of spirituality without the mind. We are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. For Paul, the Holy Spirit works through the mind to edify and sanctify us. We are not to pursue a religious experience, but grow in the knowledge of the truth. A knowledge, yes, that embraces the head and embraces the heart and is manifested in life. Here's the third conviction to carry with you. God's word is the instrument of his power. A few things to say on that, but let me, I'm just going to give you a couple of verses because I think it's self-explanatory. 1 Peter 1.23, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. James says something similar. Of his own will, he, not be, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. It's a creative act because his word is the going forth of his power. It is his communicative presence that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. With four minutes to spare, I'm going to forgo the few little things I had at the bottom of that page and ask, is there one more question (laughs) as we wrap it up? You got all that? Plenty to think about. A couple of good references in the footnotes. Timothy Ward's book is, uh, I think, The Word of Life, which is a very helpful book. All right, well, I enjoyed it.